X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, February the 26th. February is almost over. We've almost been done with two months in 2021. Do you remember 2020? That was two months ago. Today, back in the day, February 26, 2008, the New York Philharmonic played a concert in Pyongyang. In 2007, the Philharmonic announced that it received an invitation to perform in North Korea. The official concert was preceded by a trip to Pyongyang by officials from the Philharmonic and the U.S. government. They toured three concert halls, ultimately settled on the East Pyongyang Grand Theater. The orchestra and accompanying travelers, over 300 in total, were given unprecedented access to the country. Foreign journalists were allowed to make almost completely unrestricted international calls. They had internet access. Though encouraging for U.S.-Korean relations then, White House Press Secretary Dana Perino had this to say, I think at the end of the day we consider this concert to be a concert. It's not a diplomatic, you know, coup. The concert featured the national anthems of both the United States and North Korea, as well as pieces by Wagner, Gershwin, Leonard Bernstein, and a popular Korean folk song called Ararang. Today, back in the day, February 26, 1925, Oregon officially adopted its state flag. Governor Walter Pierce signed the bill providing for the adoption of a state flag. Since its admission to the Union in 1859, our state had no official flag. The first Oregon flag wasn't made until April of the same year. The flag was made with the help of the Myron Frank Company. The Sunday Oregonian described the flag, which has gone unchanged nearly 100 years, on a field of navy blue satin appears the state escutcheon in gold, supported by 33 gold stars, and in gold the words, State of Oregon. Below the escutcheon is given the year Oregon became a state, 1859. On the reverse side of the flag appears a beaver in gold, centered on a field of blue. Oregon is currently the only state with different designs on each side of the flag. We got a two-sided flag. That's twice as good as most flags. Paraguay is the only country in the world with two-sided flag. We're like Paraguay. February is Black History Month. Today, we honor lawyer Mercedes Diaz. Diaz was born in New York City, 1917, the oldest of 10 children. She said it was her parents who pushed her towards developing her intellectual interests at the city's libraries and museums. She went to Hunter College in New York City, worked as a maid, a theater usher, a switchboard operator, and a ticket clerk. In 1948, she moved to Portland, studied law at the Northwestern School of Law, took classes at night while working as a legal assistant by day. In 1960, Mercedes Diaz became the first black woman admitted to the Oregon Bar. She became a litigator, then administrative law judge. In 1969, Governor Tom McCall appointed her the first black woman district court judge. Then Oregon's first black female circuit court judge in 1972. And in 1993, the Oregon Women Lawyers developed the Judge Mercedes Diaz Award for an individual who has made an outstanding contribution to promoting minorities in the legal profession and in the community. Diaz died in 2005, was posthumously honored with a joint resolution of the 2007 Oregon Legislative Assembly. Today we have an interview with Portland City Commissioner Mingus Maps. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Well, folks, it has happened again. Republicans walked out of the Oregon Senate again. Yesterday, Republican senators employed the same tactic that allowed them to shut down the sessions in 2020 and 2019, they boycotted proceedings using the nuclear option by not showing up. What's happened is the nuclear option has become normalized, really for the first time in U.S. history. The Senate requires a quorum of at least 20 of the 30 senators. 11 Republicans and one independent senator skipped yesterday's session, meaning quorum was not reached. 
In previous legislative sessions, Republicans have used the boycotting tactic to oppose climate bills and other legislation. This time, the complaint centered around the pandemic and reopening measures. Senators wrote a letter to Kate Brown outlining their grievances. They criticized Brown for not reopening schools, criticized for not prioritizing the vaccination of seniors. This comes weeks after Governor Brown moved to vaccinate teachers ahead of people over the age of 65 in an efforts to reopen schools sooner. Letter included other complaints about a number of social and business restrictions relating to the pandemic. The unstated rationale that there are a bunch of bills that Democrats want to pass that Republicans don't like by delaying the session. They showed in the past they were able to negotiate to kill some of those bills, including bills on climate change and 21st century infrastructure and many, many other bills. We'll continue to cover this story. Senate Majority Leader Rob Wagner made a statement criticizing the Republicans' walkout. Here's the creation of new rules to prevent future walkouts. He said Oregonians will hold Senate Republicans accountable and responsible for walking off the job. There will be consequences for their breach of the public trust. And by the way, the consequences will depend on you, the listener here, and your friends. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. 553 new cases of COVID-19 were reported yesterday, according to the Oregon Health Authority. There were 10 new deaths. That brings the statewide death toll to 2,204. Yesterday, Cape Brown extended Oregon's state of emergency. The state of emergency will last until May 2nd. The declaration is significant because it legally authorizes the governor's executive orders around public health and safety related to the pandemic. In a statement, Governor Brown urged the continued use of measures, including face coverings, staying home when sick, and maintaining physical distance as new virus variants continue to circulate. She said, quote, as we vaccinate thousands of Oregonians each day and reopen more school buildings and businesses as safely as possible, now is not the time to let up our guard. There is a proposed bill to increase taxes on beer and wine. House Bill 3296, recalling the bill the Addiction Crisis Recovery Act, it would increase current taxes significantly for beer and for wine. For retail prices, they'd add about 21 cents to the cost of a beer, about 31 cents to a glass of wine. The tax revenue would be used to pay for addiction treatment services. Some of those prospective funds would be used for an additional 2,000 treatment and detox beds. Tana Sanchez of North Portland represented Rachel Prusak of West Lynn are the co-sponsors. Both have worked closely with Oregon Recovers, the advocacy group that has been pushing for legislation like this. You can probably guess who opposes it. The sellers of beer and wine. They point to alcohol industry's importance to the Oregon economy. Paul Romain has been their lobbyist. He's been one of the most successful lobbyists in Oregon, keeping down Oregon beer and wine taxes among the lowest in the country. Oregon Recovers co-chair Tony Vizina urged beer and wine distributors to not lobby against the bill. She argued that for decades, the industry has made money hand over fist, while Oregon's addiction crisis has led to tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. She's pushing the bill to improve and save the lives of Oregonians across the state, she says. Joanne Hardesty announced funding cuts to Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc., Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc., or SWNI, is a nonprofit that oversees 17 neighborhood associations in southwest Portland. It is funded largely by grants from the city. Commissioner Hardesty announced the decision to the group at a board meeting on Wednesday evening. This is one of her first major decisions as head of Portland's Civic Life Bureau. Hardesty cited a history of financial mismanagement leading up to this decision. 
The group's finances began to be questioned by city council last summer. And at that time, SWNI did not turn over financial documents that some members of the group believed could reveal financial misconduct. This resulted in city council withholding funding until an audit could be completed. The audit did uncover financial mismanagement, resulting in Hardesty's decision not to renew the city's contract with the group. The federal government no longer considers Portland to be an anarchist jurisdiction. President Joe Biden made the decree on Wednesday with an executive order. He revoked several actions of the Trump administration. One was a memo in which the DOJ announced the creation of the anarchist jurisdiction designation. Some Portlanders expressed some disappointment at the loss of their revolutionary-sounding label. You can imagine the T-shirts. However, the designation was likely intended as a step towards allowing the cutting of funds to Portland and other so-called anarchist havens. It wasn't entirely clear how that was going to happen. Portland joined Seattle and New York in a lawsuit back in October. The cities alleged that Trump was singling out cities based on political differences. What? Portland didn't like Trump? Who's to say? Intentionally creating barriers for areas with large left-leaning populations. And finally, some good news. A new bill could help bring better crisis intervention across Oregon. On Wednesday, House Bill 2417 had its first public hearing before the House Committee on Behavioral Health. The bill looks to Eugene's CAHOOTS program as a model to apply to crisis response across the state. CAHOOTS has gained attention as a specialized team for responding to mental health crises. The model provides a first responder system alternative to the police, with team members trained in crisis intervention and de-escalation. CAHOOTS was also the inspiration for the new Portland Street Response Team, which began operating in the Lentz neighborhood this month. House Bill 2417 would provide state grants to match city or county funds for similar crisis teams in Oregon. One of the bill's sponsors, Tana Sanchez, had this to say, Mental health is not a criminal act. We should not be calling the police and needing police response to medical issues. And that's today's today's Quick Quick 6 Local local Rundown. Up next, we'll hear our interview with City Commissioner Mingus Maps. Commissioner Maps joined Jefferson Smith and Sam Smargiazzi to discuss Portland street response, the city's water and waste management concerns, and the pros and cons of implementing a city manager. Here are Jefferson Smith and Sam Smargiazzi with Portland City Commissioner Mingus Maps. We are on air with Sam Smargiazzi, intrepid coverer of all things city council. Sam, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Coverer is a hard word to say. Not for me. I can say it three times fast. <laughs> coverer, coverer, coverer. I could say it even more oh, times fast, impressed. which would even be less entertaining than what I just did. Also <laughs> with us right now is City Councilor Mingus Maps, one of the newest members of Portland City Council, and he is joining us live. Commissioner, Councilor, how you doing? I'm doing great today. Uh, hello, XM uh, Radio World. I'm glad to be here. So first of all, let's just let's just set this way. Which bureau remind people which bureaus you're running now? And are any of those bureaus a place where we can finally have the long awaited series of Portland City Mingus maps that we can go around and understand really the depth of history and all of our city has to offer because we can each collect our own Mingus maps? 
Oh, well, I, we're still working on the Mingus maps, but before we're done, I promise we'll get those out. Um, I am your commissioner in charge of BOWIC, which is uh, basically 911. I'm also the commissioner in charge of clean water and dirty water. So I'm the commissioner in charge of the Water Bureau and the commissioner in charge of um, environmental services. And of course, the Water Bureau delivers about 100 million gallons of clean water to Portlanders every day. And the Environmental Services collects that uh, that dirty water after you're done using it in the stormwater. We clean it and uh, return it to the river uh, nice and clean. I, I want to jump to, and then Sam, you might have questions on this one also. I want to jump to how we treat water compared to how we treat electricity. And sure. that, and I had a chance to listen to to your and Carmen Rubio's interview recently, and it's good to talk to you about. It. It's nice to see you, by the way. Just from a, at a human level, how you doing? I'm actually doing great. Um, you know, it's been a whirlwind of uh, two months, and it's it's barely been two months, but um, I'm having a great time. And I'll also say I'm more optimistic about Portland than I ever been. Uh, I think almost literally this week we're really turning a corner on both the COVID and the economy so I think uh, we're set up to have a great spring and an even better summer and you've been able to you've managed to not have your house vandalized repeatedly and managed not to get any you know have to spray anybody like at a restaurant with like pepper yeah, spray yeah. or whatever people knock on wood kind. yeah people have been very kind to me so far so I'm grateful for that well we'll, we'll it's been very very good to me we will do our best here uh, Sam, you, I, I, I want to engage you in this too, but here's where I was, what I was thinking about. We've been watching in Texas and even here in Portland yeah. as uh, privately owned utilities have yeah. maybe done their best, but also maybe demonstrated that with the profit motive so high, sometimes preparing for disaster is not in the shareholders' best interest in the near term. Might be in the interests of people who want to make sure their power is still around. Meanwhile, you compare that with water and sewer, where usually the complaint is, oh, geez, why do we pay for the big pipe? Well, we paid for the big pipe so we didn't have some huge disaster. Has this been, has at least last few weeks, given you any insight into sort of the importance of public involvement in utilities? Of course, we're talking water and sewer for you. Oh, um, absolutely. I think one of the lessons that we learned by watching our friends down in Texas is um, the stakes for, you know, basic utilities, we, you know, we can focus in on electricity, but also they got a big water problem down there too. Uh, one of the things I'm really proud about um, is the fact that Portland has a publicly controlled water bureau and a publicly controlled environmental services bureau, i.e. sewer bureau. Um, we have managed that system over a century now with the public's interest at heart. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we've managed to avoid some of the challenges that um, our neighbors to the east have faced. Do you think, that, oh, Sam, you got a question on this. Um, little pivot, but what would you say to a person who told you that their neighborhood smelled like sewage? Um, I would encourage you to call uh, environmental services and we'll get out there and figure out what's going on. Fair enough. Sam, has this happened to you? Does it ha happen to a friend of yours? Um, <laughs> yes, it's happened to me. All of Cora Street. It smells like sewage. All right. That's not that's not right. Um, like, please do call it in and we really will get. Um, Commissioner Maps, why would you make the street smell that way? That's not uh, cool. yeah, I haven't had my coffee yet this morning, but uh, Come on, well, man. Uh, after I get some caffeine in me, we'll we'll get rid of that stink for you. <laughs> we got Thank a you, we got a text line. Sam, jump in with a follow up. Have you got it? 
Otherwise, I will jump in with a text from a listener. Commissioner Maps, what are the new priorities and diminishing priorities for the Bureau of Environmental Services? What analysis projects are underway at BEOC to understand the police union slow to actually let's pause on that one. Let's stick with that one. Any new, any diminishing priorities for BES? Oh, what you know, I think BES is a largely misunderstood uh, bureau. And I frankly, before I got there, I largely thought of them as um, the folks who provide us with super services, which is one of the things that we do. But the right frame to think about BES is, you know, they're the protectors of our rivers. We make sure that pollution don't wind up in the Willamette and don't wind up in the uh, Columbia and don't seep through our uh, ground soils. So, you know, we're really at the forefront of environmental protection. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of that. In terms of exciting new projects coming on, um, take a look um, within the next year, we should really start, I think the most ambitious cleanup of the Willamette River that the city has literally ever seen. Like the Willamette River that our kids are going to inherit it will be much cleaner than the river that we grew up uh, with. And I'm really proud of that. Um, that is a generational uh, change that um, is really exciting. It makes me think also about transportation. The name of the bureau yeah. is Bureau of Environmental Services. And you just said, hey, yeah. it's not just about sewers. It's about trying to figure out the environment. Right now, yeah. we, we discussed a rulemaking that's happening in the state that's yeah. trying to acknowledge, or at least advocates are trying to acknowledge, you got, you got liberal folks who've been campaigning on climate change, campaigning on environmental protection, getting the League of Conservation Voters endorsement for literally decades. Meanwhile, endorsing and paying for a transportation system that is making it impossible for the state to reach its climate goals. And that includes city councilors and metro councilors and county commissioners and people on transportation boards and commissions. What is the overlap? I know it's not your bureau, but what is the overlap? What commitment do you think the city needs to have that you need to have relative to the environment when it comes to transportation? Oh, it's all of a piece. That's, you know, if you're in the business of keeping uh, the air and water and soil clean, one of the things that you realize is that this is like one ecosystem. Uh, so we're deeply involved in um, trying to mitigate the causes of, of pollution. So not just cleaning it up, but also working with our intergovernmental partners and the public to figure out ways to just live cleaner. Uh, we're real excited about transitioning the, for example, transitioning the city's um, fleet uh, from fossil fuels to um, uh, alternative fuels. Um, and that's a, um, that's a transition we want to make throughout the city, uh, both in the private sector and the public sector. And we got to listen together and work uh, there this is a transitional moment in i think american and portland history by the time we get to let's say 2035 i expect uh, portland to largely be off of fossil fuels and that's going to be a, a better world for everybody but it's going to take a lot of work right now to get to that goal um commissioner i wanted to ask you about the errol heights project that i oh, think yeah. is a great example of a combination of stormwater management and uh turning those roads into shared roads so that pedestrians and bikers have uh, right away. Can you talk on that? Are there any more projects like that coming up? Oh, sure. That's a great model. And it really represents, I think, the future of city services with this particular neighborhood. You know, it's a southeast neighborhood that hasn't had paved roads for you know, ever. Uh, um, one of the problems that you have there is uh, both a transportation problem and you have a stormwater problem. Uh, so what we did over at Environmental Services is we worked with PBOT, uh, who deal with largely roads, to think about how we can both provide better um, 
better stormwater management and better roads uh, for um, that particular neighborhood. We went in and did the work at the same time, so we didn't have to rip up the streets twice. We really reinvented the roads too, so it kind of fit that particular neighborhood. And yes, you're exactly right. Uh, one of the points of that project was um, essentially um, a case study to see if we could figure out ways to provide um, uh, paved roads and um, environmental protections to a lot of our neighborhoods that don't even have paved, uh, you know, don't have uh, sewers and gutters and, and paved roads yet. Um, so I think that's part of the model. Uh, um, all of us who are longtime Portlanders sort of know those gravel roads, which have been out there uh, forever. I think we finally figured out a way to affordably um, up upgrade those. I'm really excited about it and congratulate everyone who worked to make that happen. I was here as we kind of closed, but literally people have been working on that for a generation. Mm, yeah, it seems one of those rare projects where everybody was happy in the end. Yeah, it really was a wonderful thing. Um, I wanted to ask you about your bureau and assignments in general, and this sure. kind of speaks to the debate about um, a centralized bureaucracy and electing city councilors. Um, do you feel like you're set up in a position to accomplish the goals that you uh, set it during your campaign? I am, you know, we always cared about and wanted to be champions of the environment and water and environmental services are really about um, exactly that, keeping our um, keeping our streams clean. Uh, you know, we're deeply involved in helping uh, salmon recover. So I'm deeply excited about that. Um, I also have uh, BOIC uh, 911, which gets me at the table as we talk about public safety reform. Of, you know, none of our public safety systems work unless 911 works, and 911 has to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Indeed, you know, I think the future of public safety here in Portland is to figure out our street response teams, which we launched, I believe, just last week. But in order for that street response teams, where we send out um, mental health workers to a houseless person going through some crisis instead of sending out a cop, in order for that system to work, uh, the first step is to have a 911 call taker who can understand the situation and get the appropriate services to the right people at the right time. It's much more complicated than it sounds. Um, our teams are doing great. Um, and I'm really happy to be at sort of the cutting edge of help, helping usher in this new era in um, public safety here in Portland. Um, so maybe this is romantic thinking, but um, I wonder about um, like developmentally with like children, how you can prevent um, violent impulses and is the Office of Violence Prevention focused at all on like programs that, I don't know, encourage kids in any way? Well, let's see, I mean, they definitely, the Office of Violence Prevention definitely does have um, a youth focus, but you know, here, and this is, I think what Portlanders are calling for, um, yeah, um, the Office of Violence Prevention typically gets involved in the real meat of violence, but I think there's a prevention piece where you wanna work with uh, youth before violence happens. You know, if you take a look at the demographics of who gets shot and who's doing the shooting, you know, it's typically young men of 18 to kind of 30 something. Um, and you know, those are that's a group um, that we need to do a much better job of supporting. Um, I think there's some exciting things coming on. I know Commissioner Hardesty uh, and the mayor are pulling together a um, 
community meeting for men of color, which I think will be happening in about a month. Um, and one of the things that we hope to get from that discussion is a, a better sense of the kinds of services uh, um, that you know young black men, frankly, need at this moment. Um, I think we also need to do a much better job uh, providing young people with you know great educational opportunities, great great after-school opportunities and great employment opportunities. And uh, COVID has hurt our ability to do all of that. Um, I think that we are we're at the beginning of the end of the COVID era. Uh, um, so we'll be able, or at least we'll be able to do a much better job of you know, providing those kinds of um, services to our youth. Uh, appreciate, Sam, appreciate Sam's question. It's sort of, and the general question, a little bit like the, even a little bit related to the environmental questions, how far upstream do we go? Right. Yeah. I mean, and if and if trauma is is repeated even across generations, do you go upstream because you go early in a person's life, or do you go even earlier than that? And so, how do you just have a compassionate, strategic uh, community? Anything that you've learned in this job that surprised you? Oh my gosh, I I learn stuff uh, every hour of every day. But circling back to the the point that you've uh, um, you just brought up, Jefferson, um, you know, healthy communities don't have problems with gun violence. Um, you know, that's a sign. The violence that we see right now is a sign of where we need to do better. Um, I knew that before I got into this job, but I see it uh, more so than ever. It just reminds me of the importance of what the local government does. You know, we're the people who provide, you know, keep the schools open, keep the parks open, provide um, employment opportunities for youth. You know, indeed, our Parks Bureau is, I think, our largest employer of youth in the city. Um, so these kind of core, not particularly sexy services that we provide are really the bedrock of um, a healthy community. Um, and I'm really proud to be part of the, you know, thousands of public servants in town that, you know, help keep this machine uh, humming along. So you said you're learning stuff every day. What's the dumbest thing you thought before you started your job that you don't think anymore? That there are easy answers out there. Mm, what a good answer. What, that's a, he that's said the, when he said that. That's the that's that's answer of someone who's running for re-election at some point. I just, I, <laughs> have you already announced, by the way, your re-election? I mean, I know you just started like two months ago. I haven't announced yet. Uh, I'm having fun. I fully expect to run for re-election, but we'll we'll let the people decide that. Oh, you heard you heard it here first. You heard it here for breaking news. Megas Map has announced for 2024 <laughs> running for re-election. Well, I I hope that you'll have me, but uh, we have a lot of work to do. Let's uh, let's try to get the city opened up this summer and have a great year. Before we go, Sam, you want to maybe ask about? We're going to probably talk about uh, former government, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I've heard you say that your stance on uh, this debate regarding uh, city government setup and um, the city manager position, you're in favor of that. Absolutely. Uh, and we have a charter reform commission uh, at, at work right now taking a look at the issues. Um, this is an independent citizens group. So they're kind of evaluating. Um, they're taking a look at our form of government. Um, I have talked to uh, some of the staff over there and some, some of the members of that committee. Um, I look forward to testifying in front of that committee at some point in the future. Um, I think one of Portland's greatest challenges is our commission form of government. Um, a lot of people think we have one mayor and four members of city council, but because of the commission form of government, in practice we have five mayors, and frankly you see that on display um, 
almost every day. Uh, we could be a much better and more, much more effective city if we um, changed and modernized our form of government. Um, something I believe in deeply and something I'll be advocating for for as long as I sit in this seat. I want to dig in on that one. So, sure. And, and I've heard the case from you and others for why to change it. And I heard it from the, you know, our Chamber of Commerce from a long, for, for a long time and from the Oregonian Editorial Board for a long time. Yeah. And, 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 you make a, and you make a good case for the benefits of switching to sort of a, a centralized bureaucracy run by you don't push for a strong mayor. You push sure. for sort of an unelected king. The, uh, here is the here is a counter. Here is the thing I worry is lost it, sure. right now. You are account, you are accountable in a way that an unelected bureaucrat will never be that you because because you're or I mean, you've already announced now for 2024. And that means yeah, yeah. That you've got to be whether it's whether it's gun violence, whether it's whether it's Cora Street smelling like a sewer. Right. Where yeah. where, where you're like, you know what? I got it. I got it. Like that is a very different thing than somebody who does not have that level of accountability. And uh, how do you maintain? And then I've got a follow up to this. Well, I'll even spoiler alert. It's sortition. It's citizen juries. It's how do we move to a system of of actually engaging people in decision making, not only into listening to them, but giving people power, actually impaneling randomly selected human beings to make decisions for the city. But how do you maintain? What are your thoughts of how do we maintain this idea that the people are in charge, that there is deep connection between city government and the people board, which has been a hallmark that has not been a bug that has been a feature. How do you make sure that in trying to throw out some water we don't throw out our most important baby well you know i if we had a city manager that city manager would still work for city council um so i do believe that we have that democratic connection that that you are looking for and is you know, there I a city though i gotta challenge you forgive me but is, is there a city you can point to that has civic engagement anywhere near ours that has the kind of the kind of form of government you're talking about well you know like our Portlanders engage with the with their local government because of our form of government, or our Portlanders engage with uh, their local government because that's kind of just part of being a Portlander. It's part of our local character. I would argue that uh, civic engagement is part of Portland's local character. Um, I don't think that that's something which City Hall created. I think that you know, frankly, the City Hall that we have is a product of Portland's. A long tradition of civic engagement. You know, the people have very much wanted to have um, uh, a close connection to their elected leaders. Um, I think that we can maintain that even as we sort of modernize our government for the 21st century. How? How? Um, well, I, you know, I'm not. The, well, actually, I was going to say I would. Uh, um, the people, I'll tell you, I get literally, I get hundreds of emails a day. Um, I think um, from Portlanders who have concerns ranging from public safety to homelessness to um, the smells on the street. Yeah, because they um, think, think you that, work for them. Absolutely. And but often, they, don't know I the, who they, they don't know who the hell the bureaucrats are, the Bureau of Environmental Services, the wonderful people, though they might be. Sure. But I'll tell you, I get emails on stuff that like I don't control, but I'll tell you, I get up, I get on the phone and I kind of reach across aisle, the aisles or reach into bureaus that I don't control and say, hey, can you help us with this particular issue? Uh, people really care about it. I'm not, for example, the police commissioner, but I tell you, I probably spend about a third of my day, uh, um, you know, working with um the community and working with uh, leaders over in City Hall to figure out how we can police more effectively. Um, so I, you know, I we're not gonna. 
I'm not going to write off issues just because um, it's not in my bureau. Um, indeed, you know, I think that uh, you know one of the ironies here is that we have less. I think our form of government kind of encourages members of council to be less responsive to a lot of issues because you can kind of say, well, I'm not the parks guy, so sorry about that. You know, you need to call uh, a different office. Um, You know, I think it would be much more effective if we felt responsible for um, every service that that the city provides. And frankly, the public expects me to be responsive to every service. They don't care what my bureau assignments are, um, as long as I'm doing a good job, you know, delivering 911 services, water and sewer. I'll offer one more piece, because you're on the record on your view, and it it is not my, and nor is it even my intent to try to persuade you against that view, but to get to the sort of yeah. next level thing. I will posit to you that there will be something lost and it's something important. I don't say yeah. that because I think I'm going to, because it's even my intent to try to change your yeah. yes or no on the question. But there, yeah. and, and comparing people's engagement with the state legislature to people's yeah. engagement with the city council, people are more aware, more engaged with what's happening in city council. And I, I absolutely believe that a big part of that is because they know their city councilor has power. They know like it's just people just kind of understand Portland, our, our city councilors have power. And doing this, our city councilors are going to have a lot less power, it, just a lot less. So and, and so so there may, there's some pros to that. But how do you still make sure people have power? Because, by the way, I don't care if city councilors have power. What I care about is people having power. How do we do that? And here's the and here's my little thought. Maybe I can even put it in the form of a question, not just sure. be an on-air lobbyist. And that is, would you support a system or be or even push for the consideration of a system that would look at more power for people, that would look at a citizen jury system, look at and paneling uh, not only citizen review boards like we're going to start doing with police, but actually, hey, here's a question. We're going to panel a random selection, make sure it's actually representative racially, demographically, geographically in Portland. And we're not just going to hear them. They get to a report they're going to make this call would you support more citizen juries oh um absolutely i think one of the you know secret sauces of portland is uh, citizen engagement i think one of our challenges of this moment is to reinvent what government looks like for the 21st century uh, you know in my opinion i think that means kind of um modernization moving towards a you know a city manager form of government but uh, you're absolutely right jefferson if uh from here if by doing this we lose um, um, civic engagement. Uh, that's a real problem. Um, I, I, one of the reasons why I'm here today is because I've sat on a lot of community boards uh, and I know how important that work is. Um, and certainly um, I will do everything moving forward to create opportunities for everyone to get involved um, um, in the life um, and the politics of their city. That's how and why Portland gets better as a community. So you're absolutely right. That's something we need to uh, focus on. And yes, I would support that. Sam Smargiasi, thank you so much for all the work you're doing on preparing us and reporting on city council work. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Bye. Commissioner Mingus Maps, thank you so much for spending the time this morning. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you. And thank you for your service. X-ray. Thanks to Commissioner Mingus Maps for joining the local. Big thanks, production team, executive editor, the wondrous Will Romy, lead writer, Head of the talk department, Miranda Selinger. Supporting editors and writers, Julie Oppenheimer, Sam Smargiasi, Carly Quadros, Jonathan Covington-Bram, Brian Miller, writer Sherwood, Carlos Molina, Nebraska Lucas, Joy McGlone, and John Collier. Permanent thanks to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. My name is Jefferson Smith. Thanks, of course, to original journalism and research by the London Report, Oregon Health Authority, Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, KTU, The Oregonian, 
Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, and News Partner Street Roots, and Eater Portland. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. Thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday. X-Ray. X-Ray.